It's up for debate on KLJXLP Flagstaff, KJAC 107.1. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports only on KJAC Radio. We have a very special guest on the show today joining us every single Wednesday to talk about sports, talk about their website, talk about all kinds of things. We've got a sports fanatic here, Sean Clark. Welcome to the show. How you doing today? Doing fantastic. Major League Baseball starts tomorrow, which is pretty exciting. Formula One has returned. A lot of great stuff going on in the world of sports. Let's get into it. A lot of great stuff to talk about, and we're going to start off with what we've kind of been talking about a lot of the last couple weeks because it's been the biggest story in all of sports, at least in my opinion, and that is the NCAA tournament. We have now reached the final four. We have down to four teams, and this is this is big. I mean, we are seeing uh, a lot of really good teams, a lot of maybe not so good teams reaching the final four. Let's talk about it. Let's let's first jump in with the team that was kind of a lock for the final four, one of the teams that we could kind of imagine in the final four from the very beginning, and that's Gonzaga. What has Gonzaga shown so far in this tournament that gives them the opportunity to win the tournament? Going into this tournament, we all knew that Gonzaga, as you said, was a lock for the Final Four. We all knew that Gonzaga was a team that was going to be extremely tough to beat. I mean, after all, they came into this NCAA tournament undefeated, 26-0 coming into the tournament. Right now, they're 30-0. They're two wins away from their first ever national championship, and they're two wins away from becoming the first team since the 1976 Indiana Hoosiers to win the NCAA tournament undefeated. And what this team has done so well is they're not the be- they haven't been the best three point shooting team during the NCAA tournament. But you know what they're great at? They can dominate inside. Drew Timmy has been an absolute force for Gonzaga inside, making the likes of Evan Mobley just look silly. Uh, Jalen Suggs has shown that he is a future superstar in the NBA with a triple double almost against USC at 18 points, 10 rebounds, eight assists. Having a triple-double in college basketball is almost unheard of, and he was two assists away from playing a triple-double. Gonzaga hasn't been the best shooting team, but they're still dominating everybody. I believe their closest win was 18 points over Oklahoma. I believe that was their closest win. They beat USC by 19, they beat Creighton by over 20, if I remember correctly. So Gonzaga really has been flat-out dominant, just as I predicted they would be. They got a little bit of a break in the lead eight as they didn't have to play the second seed Iowa Hawkeyes, which would have been a little bit of an interesting matchup. But Gonzaga, they just have so much athleticism. They're so good inside. They're so good defensively. Even when Gonzaga's not shooting well, they're nearly impossible to beat. And I, and they're playing UCLA in the Final Four, and I don't see that being a close game either. No, I, I 100% agree. I think this UCLA game is uh, anything but a trap game for Gonzaga. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about UCLA's path, but I kind of want to talk a little bit about, um, you said that Gonzaga is nearly unbeatable, yes. but nearly isn't completely unbeatable. So if a team does want to knock Gonzaga out and, and, and potentially win the tournament, if it comes down to that, uh, what do they have to do? Well, I think it's very simple. I'm going to, I'm going to break it down in a very simple way. Um, you have to hit lights out from three. 
you have to be you have to channel your inner 2016 and 2018 Villanova and just shoot the lights out. That's the only way you have a chance to be Baylor, to to beat Gonzaga because Gonzaga they have struggled a little bit shooting three wise. Corey Kispert has not been the most dominant player outside of his performance against Oklahoma. So I think that if you're going to beat Gonzaga, you have to shoot the lights out because Gonzaga will kill you inside. No matter who Gonzaga will play in this Final Four, they will dominate inside. Gonzaga will also dominate defensively. They will be great in transition. The only way you can keep up with this team is by shooting the lights out. And there's only one team that can do that, and that's Baylor. You, yes, you, yes, Johnny Juzing for UCLA is impressive. Yes, Houston is great defensively, but I don't even think Houston can guard Gonzaga defensively. I just... I. If there's one team in college basketball that can make Houston's defense look silly, that's Gonzaga. I, I don't think Houston matches up with Gonzaga whatsoever. But Baylor is the best three-point shooting team in the country. And they are the one team left that can truly beat Gonzaga because Baylor can shoot the lights out. And here's the thing. We've been saying it since basically December and January that Gonzaga and Baylor were the two best teams all season, that they were on a collision course. Yes, there have been times where maybe we've questioned that and maybe thought, oh, maybe it's Michigan, maybe it's this other team, but... The whole season has been building up to a Gonzaga-Baylor national title. And I feel like that's exactly what's going to happen. And it'll come down to if Baylor can have that impressive shooting performance. And if if Gonzaga can shoot well, you're done. Like, if Gonzaga shoots well, they're unbeatable. No nearly in the same. They are unbeatable. The only thing is they're not consistently the best shooting team. So because of that, they're nearly unbeatable. But even still, Baylor has to shoot the lights out. If you, if they're gonna, if anyone's gonna have a chance of being this Gonzaga machine, okay. Well, let's talk about the team that they have to face, the team that they're gonna have to go through if they want to get to the national championship. And for Gonzaga, that is UCLA, and they are the biggest surprise right now in the NCAA tournament. They were really not expected at all to make it to this point in the tournament to beat the teams that they have, beating Alabama, beating Michigan. So for UCLA, is it is it already? done and over or is there something that they can do to get through Gonzaga I remember I was talking on the Rich Report and also this show about how UCLA is not a very good team I always said that UCLA shouldn't make the tournament all they only had one good win in their regular season I was against Colorado they were one and done in the Pac-12 tournament they were not deserving of an at-large bid and you're telling me that they're in the final four what that 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 makes no sense they're basically they're basically a big brand version of VCU because VCU back in 2011 when they made the Final Four should not have been the tournament either. If you if you take out the knowledge that VCU is in the Final Four and just look at the resume against other teams, VCU had no business being in that tournament. They made the Final Four, but UCLA has won five games. Yes, they won five games in this tournament. That's ridiculous. When when all the other three teams have won four. The thing about UCLA is that they're very gritty. They they're they chase the loose balls, they win the hustle battle, they hit clutch shots, and they're very disciplined. Uh Johnny Juzing was a superstar against Michigan with nearly 30 points. Hame Hawkes has been the energy factor for them in this tournament. But I'm sorry, UCLA. You've had a great run. You shocked every I think you shocked just about everyone by beating Alabama. I think all of us were assuming I didn't even I didn't even sit down to watch Alabama UCLA because I'm like, eh, I don't need to watch that because Alabama's going to kill them. And suddenly I look at my phone like, wait, Alabama just hit a buzzer just in overtime? W- what just happened? <laughs> but watching the highlights of that and then also watching them beating Michigan, UCLA was just gritty, but they weren't overly impressive either. Except for Abilene Christian, 
and BYU, their wins have been extremely close, but by the skin of their teeth. They don't have the firepower whatsoever to defeat Gonzaga. At one point, with about, I would say, four minutes to go in the game against Michigan last night, UCLA only had two players that scored more than four points. Really? That's not going to get it done against Gonzaga, and UCLA just simply does not have the talent to hang with Gonzaga. I think that Gonzaga wins by, like, 30 points. Well, and here's what I'm the most worried about for this UCLA team. And I never like it when a team is super reliant on one single player. And that's kind of how they have been this tournament. If Johnny Juzang doesn't score 28 points, UCLA has 21, 23 points total in the game. I mean, outside of Johnny Juzang, there was nothing. And against a team like Michigan, who was missing their best three-point shooter, who was already shorthanded, uh, in that sense, it's not a big surprise that they were able to win that matchup. But they're going to go up against a team that is not shorthanded, that doesn't lack any firepower, doesn't lack the shooting ability. Like like you said, Corey Kispert is a, is a flamethrower. Maybe he hasn't had the best tournament shooting, but he's a flamethrower. Uh, this Gonzaga team differs from this Michigan team as the top-level talent never seems to disappear. I mean, when was the last time Drew Timmy disappeared in a game and he was just completely shut out? When's the last time Jalen Suggs was just completely shut out and wasn't able to be the playmaker or the ball handler that he is? I mean, it just hasn't happened. And for Michigan, we've seen it before. We saw in the Big Ten Championship, uh, in the Big Ten Championships in that tournament, that Michigan against Ohio State, they shut down at the end of the game. Mike Smith didn't hit the big time shots and. Guess what happened again in this same scenario? Michigan couldn't hit the big-time shots. Franz Wagner airballed a wide-open three-point shot to potentially win the game, and then an offensive rebound to Eli Brooks missed the layup. I mean, for Michigan, they lost this game. They they should have won this game against UCLA. I mean, scoring 49 points against uh, against UCLA is unacceptable. I mean, you know when you're playing this UCLA team, you have to stop Johnny Duzang. And that's pretty much it. And Michigan had so much trouble, so much of a task just slowing him down that they just didn't look like they were in it from start to finish. And the difference is, as UCLA goes into the Final Four, the difference that they're going to see is Gonzaga is the most complete team in college basketball. I know that I picked Baylor to win the NCAA tournament. They're not as complete a team as Gonzaga. They don't have the interior presence of Drew Timmy. Gonzaga is going to come out and, in my opinion, uh, embarrass this UCLA team. And it's kind of what Gonzaga has done all tournament long. They went in, they embarrassed Norfolk State, not a big surprise. They went in, they beat up on Oklahoma, not a big surprise. Embarrassed Creighton. They went in, embarrassed USC, and UCLA is probably the third best team out of that whole bunch. So they're coming in, and they're going to run into an absolute saw that they just will not be able to get through. I, I mean, the, the over-under in this game is, is minus 15 for, for Gonzaga, minus 14 and a half. I'll take that. I'll take that plus five because I don't see this UCLA team really having that good of a stretch uh, like they did against Michigan when they face off against Gonzaga. I'll just say this. Uh, 
if you live on the West Coast and if you want to do something Saturday night, just just go for it. I personally am not going to watch this Gonzaga UCLA game because I have date night, and that would be much better than watching Gonzaga beat UCLA by thirty. Luckily, CBS was smart and put Baylor Houston as the first game, which is a way better matchup, and it's at like what two o'clock. Much better. I, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, Sean doesn't have to miss date night. He gets to see that Final Four matchup. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about how both of those teams got to this point and what we expect from Houston and Baylor. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. We are joined by Sean Clark once again. Sean, thank you very much for joining. If you guys haven't already, check out Sean's website at thecandidclark.com, or you can follow him on social media at thecandidclark. He posts great sports content, different things like that. Uh, so make sure to check him out there. During the first segment, we talked about the left side of the NCAA tournament bracket. And now let's break down to the right side. Uh, we have two teams left in the Final Four. The Baylor Bears facing off against the Houston Cougars. So we kind of already talked a little bit about Baylor, so let's talk a little bit more. How did Baylor get to this point? Well, simply put, they had great three-point shooting and they had great energy on all ends of the floor. Their guard trio was sensational in leading Baylor to the Final Four, and it seemed like Baylor was never truly threatened. Obviously, Hartford was a 16 seed. That's all we need to say about that. In the second round, they beat Wisconsin, who was a, was a very slow team. Like, they could shoot, yes, but they were not a very athletic team, and Baylor was able to run right through them. Even though Wisconsin did put up a bit of a fight because of their shooting, they played a shorthanded Villanova team in the Sweet 16, which, as we talked about last week, I'm amazed they got to the Sweet 16. And then they played Arkansas. Now, Arkansas was interesting. The problem with Arkansas is that they just didn't have the firepower to keep up. Baylor's guard play was just overall better, and they were able to win relatively comfortably. Baylor was never truly challenged on the way to the Final Four, and it just showed how much better they are than everyone else. Yeah, no, I mean, Baylor's shooting has been not where it was during the regular season, but they've been able to win it in different ways as well, which has been a, a real confidence booster for Baylor that they haven't really had to rely on that three-point shooting quite as much um, as, as they had to during the regular season. Uh, I'm interested to see this matchup between Baylor and Houston because of the the matchups that we are going to see. Offensively and defensively, we've probably got the best offensive guard unit in all of college basketball with the Baylor Bears, the best defensive guard unit in all of basketball with Houston facing off. Just going to be a completely great show. Now, Houston got to this point as well, so they obviously haven't played a seed higher than 10 uh, in Rutgers, so maybe not the best competition, but you think they're deserving of being in this position? They are. Now, obviously, that Rutgers game was completely embarrassing. They were down nine points with, like, under four minutes ago. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Houston is about to lose to Rutgers. After all of this hype that that Houston was building the last few years, like, this like this was supposed to be the, the year that Houston finally broke in. You're telling me they're losing by 10 to Rutgers? What the heck is happening here? And I was very confused. Now, suddenly, Houston turned around. They completely shut down Rutgers late in the game. 
and they're able to escape with the victory. Escaping that victory seemed to really give them a bunch of confidence because after that, they've looked dominant. They completely shut down my Syracuse Orange in the Sweet 16. It was a hard game to watch for me. But Syracuse, they, they couldn't shoot at all. They scored less than 50 points. You're talking about how badly Michigan played against UCLA. At least Michigan scored more points than Syracuse did against Houston. Syracuse's offense was non-existent against Houston. It was, it was honestly over at halftime. Uh, like I knew, I knew once it was halftime. Like, yeah, Syracuse is not winning this game. It, it, it was, it was a bitter feeling. But I'm just like, yeah, Houston's really good. They deserve it. And I got, and I got to tell you, in the lead eight against against Oregon State, I, I thought Houston would win comfortably, and they kind of did. Although Oregon State made it close at the end. But I got to give a shout out to Quentin Grimes, who is becoming one of my favorite players in this tournament. Quentin Grimes was was a high-level recruit, went to Kansas, didn't quite work out there, went to Houston, and he has become the go-to player on this team. He has such a nice shooting stroke. He's great defensively. He really hustles, and he's made the big plays. I, he is everything that you love in a college basketball guard. He, he's, he's the quintessential college basketball guard. He's really excelled in Houston, and Quentin Grimes made the big three that allowed Houston to hold off a incoming Oregon State assault. Well, Houston deserves to be in the situation while they've played double-digit seeds. At the same time, though, Syracuse was the best defensive team in the tournament before the second weekend. Be that Syracuse completely shut down San Diego State, who was a who was the best team in the Mountain West. They shut down Miles McBride in West Virginia. The only reason West Virginia was even in that game is because Sean McNeil had an unreal shooting performance. So being Syracuse is never easy in March Madness, I would know. And Houston did it with ease. Houston beat two really good teams. And Oregon State was a very hot team. Oregon State made Louis Chicago look ordinary. And I, I, you can ask Illinois how hard that is to do. So Houston definitely deserved to be in this position. Well, let's talk about that guard matchup between Baylor and Houston that we're going to see. We've got a top three for Houston that is comprised of Marcus Sasser, Quentin Grimes, like you said, and Dejon Giroux. And then looking at Baylor's top three guards, which... They've got a ton as well. Jared Butler, who's been Big 12 Player of the Year. Davion Mitchell, who's been great defensively. And then Machio Teague, who I think is probably the best three-point shooter out of that, that group. What are you expecting to see out of this, uh, this guard matchup coming up on the Final Four? Oh, it's going to be an absolute dandy of a guard matchup between these two teams. Like I said, this is of the two Final Four games, this is by a massive mile the game to watch. Because you have three guards for Houston who are exceptional defenders, and you have three guards for Baylor who are exceptional scorers. So it's basically a battle of strength. It's kind of like this this Super Bowl in a way where you had you had a great you had a great defense versus a great offense. And you see these contrasts of styles go up against each other, and that's just some of the most entertaining matchups are when you have this contrast styles. Now sometimes the contrast styles can lead to a complete domination, kind of like in Super Bowl. 48 where you know defense dominate offense for example we can we can see that stuff happening all the time but i feel like in this match because houston has good scoring ability and also baylor can defend i feel like i feel like the contrast of styles is going to result in a in a stalemate so to speak and i think it's going to take a a guy outside of those three to really score i think i think that baylor wins this game because of matthew mayer matthew mayer is a legit scorer off the bench. He is a stretch four, so to speak. And I think he'll be the biggest difference. But with this guard matchup, just expect a lot of 
Baylor's going to have to hit a bunch of tough shots, and and Houston is going to have to keep up with these guys. Can Houston last all 40 minutes? I don't know if they can. That's why That's why another reason I think Baylor wins is because I think Baylor will just have a little more in the tank than Houston. Well, and, and a big issue for this Houston team is once you go beyond that first three guys, the scores don't really go too deep for Houston. I mean, they're... A great defensive team and a good offensive team, but they're not a great offensive team. Baylor, on the other hand, is a great offensive team, and they have the potential to be a great defensive team as well. The only problem with Baylor on the defensive side of the ball is their interior defense. Uh, Flo Thamba is a good defender. Jonathan Chamwa Chachwa is a good defender, but both of them get into foul trouble very frequently, and if you miss out on both of those guys, this Baylor team is really not a great interior defending team. They don't have the the size. Uh, Matthew Meyer is an okay defender on the inside, but he's really more suited to guard a wing. Um, so if Houston can get this Baylor team into foul trouble, and I don't think they attack guys like Davion Mitchell, guys like... Um, any of those guards like Jared Butler or anything like that, I think they need to attack the guys inside, try to force them to a small ball lineup where I think Houston, even though uh, Baylor is very good in a small ball lineup, I think Houston can match up pretty well in that small ball lineup. They can bring out Quentin Grimes, Marcus Sasser, Dejon Giroux, and then have somebody like Tremont Mark in as well while keeping a four guard output. Uh, that's kind of a matchup that I'm interested to see because I know Baylor loves running with those four guards with Jared Butler, uh, Davion Mitchell, Machio Teague, and then Adam Flagler throwing him into that mix as well. So I'm interested to see what kind of combinations we have because I think the matchup here is is very good for both teams. Offensively, Baylor has the advantage. I mean, it's, it's a clear three-point shooting advantage, but defensively, Houston is one of the grittiest, one of the toughest, one of the most athletic uh, defenders in all of college basketball. Marcus Sasser is a little undersized, but I think Dejon Giroux, if I were to pick one guy who I would want as, as my main defender, uh, Dejon Giroux is definitely on that top five of that list as far as guards go. So I like this Houston team. I've liked them all season long, but if they're running into Baylor, which they are, they're running into Baylor, they're going to have to keep up with this team offensively. They're going to have to go to those other options. I mean, like you said, Baylor probably will have to go to their other options as well, like they've had to so far this tournament. Flagler stepping up, Meyer stepping up as well. So I like Houston. I think they're a well-coached team. I think they're an athletic team. They're a team that can play all sides of the ball pretty well. But I think Baylor is just too well-rounded, too lethal from the outside and if you can get going from the outside I mean we've seen Matteo Teague hit upwards of 10 11 three-pointers in a game and that's impressive for an NBA game let alone a college game which is much shorter so if this Baylor team gets shooting I just don't see Houston coming out on top yeah I don't either Houston does not have the firepower to keep up in a shootout that Houston is a team that relies on winning gritty matchups Every team that Houston has played in this NCAA tournament outside of Rutgers has scored under 60 points. And Yami Points Rutgers scored 60. Houston relies on defense and grit to win. If they get into a shootout with Baylor, they're not winning this game. They Houston has to contain Baylor, and they have to hit some tough shots of their own because Baylor is not just going to let Houston just rain threes on them all, the, all game long. No, Davion Mitchell is one of the best defenders at the guard position as well in his own right for Baylor. So 
I mean, they've got the defenders. I, I think this is a crash course for the two best teams to face off in the championship. And, I mean, the two best teams are Gonzaga and Baylor. I mean, I, I think that they've been like that since the beginning. Uh, I know that uh, we've had this conversation on air before, and you were like, Kate, I, I really think that it's going to have to come down to these two top teams, Gonzaga and Baylor, at the end. And I, and I kept telling you, I was like, Sean, 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 come on. You have to realize March Madness is full of upsets. March Madness, things can happen. But the way things are looking, the way everything's pointing, the top two teams in college basketball are on a collision course to meet up in the championship game. Absolutely. And can you please tell me the last time that this happened? The last time that the top two teams faced off? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I can, I can, I can already answer that question right now. 2016. Villanova, North Carolina, by far the two best teams in that tournament and by far the two best teams in the Final Four squared off. And what did we get? We got an absolute great game. Absolute great game. And in my opinion, the greatest, one of the greatest games in college basketball history. Well, and, and one of the best game winners. I mean, from both teams, potentially, it, it, such a great game. If we can get anything that touches that with a 10-foot pole, I'd be happy. But, I mean, I think if you get these two teams, Gonzaga and Baylor, into the same building, if both of these teams end up uh, playing each other in the championship, we get exactly what we wanted to see. We don't see Gonzaga facing off with a team that may be a little lesser. Uh, not saying Houston's a little lesser, but, I mean, the, the top three teams in my eyes as far as college basketball has gone this season is Gonzaga, Illinois, uh, and then... Baylor as well obviously they're not going to be able to run into Illinois they got their their arms chopped off pretty much by Loyola Chicago but if Gonzaga can face off with Baylor we get what we want yes uh, and, and what we want is a great game Gonzaga with such a well-rounded unit Baylor with a lethal guard unit I mean I am excited for the final four but if we can get that matchup oh that'll be a great day Monday yeah Monday night would be definitely a must-watch night now I don't. I know some people may be thinking, wait a minute, what about Texas Tech, Virginia? Well, they were good, but Virginia. I don't think Virginia was was. I think Purdue should have been in. I think like I would have if if Carson Edwards would have played Texas Tech in the national title game, that would have been even better than the thrilling game between Virginia and Texas Tech. I just wanted to make that clarification. But yes, the last time the two best teams squared off was 2016 where it was undoubtedly the two best teams, like without a shred of a doubt, the two best teams. And we got one of the greatest games of all time. So that's what that's what I'm really hoping to see between Gonzaga and Baylor. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, though, Sean, because uh, you were the one who was telling me all, all, all year long, you're like, Cade, I'm telling you, it's going to be these two teams. They're just the best two teams in college basketball, Gonzaga and Baylor. But then you strayed from your own your own path, and I, I I was like, you know what? Maybe Sean is right. Maybe I should I should have listened, and and you ended up going with Illinois uh, Illinois Gonzaga in the championship. But we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about some baseball. Opening day is coming up very very soon, so stay tuned for that. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. 
Now, we are joined by Sean Clark, the Candid Clark, once again. He joins us every single Wednesday to talk about his website, talk about things he's uploading, and different types of sports like that. And, Sean, you're uh, in the process of writing a piece about the American League West, giving a preview uh, about those five teams, and that's going to be published in the next couple of days. So let's talk about the American League West. Uh, We're going to talk about a lot more baseball coming up. Opening day is, I think, Friday, right? Tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. uh, Or Thursday, yeah, so one day away. We're real close, knocking on the door of opening day. Um, So we're going to talk a lot more baseball as as things start to happen, but let's talk about the American League West. Why are you so enthralled with uh, with this division? Well, first of all, it's a division with my favorite team in it, so there is that. But here's the thing about the American League West. Who... Who is like legitimately really good in this division outside of maybe Oakland? This division is a mess, and in my opinion, this is the weakest division in all of Major League Baseball. Because if you if you break it down, the NL West has the Dodgers and the Padres, two of the three best teams in baseball. The NL Central, while a bit of a mess, does have the Cardinals and the Brewers, two pretty good teams, and, and the Reds are very mediocre. And well, obviously the the Pirates or the Pirates and the Cubs are also mediocre too, but at least you got like a couple mediocre teams and two good teams. The NL East is loaded. I I I think that last place could be 500. That's how loaded this division is in the NL East. I think the NL East is going to absolutely feast on the lower teams in the NL West and the rest of the NL Central. Yeah, and I'll say this: I think uh, the NL East is going to be a little bit uh, a little bit kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for? I I don't think it's going to be exactly. Um, as bad as the records show, I think the records for the NL East teams are going to be a little bit lower because they're going to they're going to cannibalize each other. Yeah, they're going to beat up on each other all year. So I I think that there are going to be a few under five hundred teams, but I think the talent in that uh, that division is all above five hundred. Yes, and going to the American League, so even with the AL Central, the Indians are mediocre a little bit, and the, the Royals sometimes rebuilding, but you do have two good teams in the White Sox and the Indians. Sorry, the uh, Twins. Excuse me. And then the AL East, oh my gosh. There are three legitimately good teams. And I think in the... And one of my predictions is that three AL East, AL East teams make the playoffs. I think that the Rays and the Blue Jays make the playoffs over the Twins. So, where does that leave the AL West? There's only one like good team in the AL West. That's it. I would even call the Astros a good team. The Astros have almost no pitching le- left over... F- Justin Verlander, Tommy John surgery. Zach Greinke is 37 years old. He's been made. Okay, I, my favorite baseball g- video game of all time is MVP Baseball 2005, which is after the 2004 season. Zach Greinke was the was a young ace on the Kansas City Royals. Okay, that's how long that Zach Greinke has been in Major League Baseball. Okay, so Zach Greinke has been around forever. Also, Lance McCullers. The uh, okay, those are your two best pitchers. By the way, because Justin Verlander is having Tommy John surgery, and we all know how good their lineup was last season. Oh wait, it wasn't. Oh, you also lost George Springer, possibly your best overall player in that lineup. Hmm, very interesting. You got the Los Angeles Angels, who still have no pitching. You have no pitching. It's like in it's like in the NHL. You have the Edmonton Oilers have no goaltending. And Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl are, are left to rot, basically. Same with Mike Trout. The Angels have no pitching. The, the Mariners had a better record than the Angels last season. Speaking of my Mariners, the Mariners are still rebuilding, and this season's not going to be much different than last season. 
tweak a couple things here, then the Mariners are basically the same exact team. Their best players are still in the minor leagues. So the Mariners are going to be the same in Texas. Um, let's just say the less said about them, the better. That's all I'm going to say about Texas. It's it's. I, I made a dumb mistake picking, thinking that Texas would be better than Oakland last year. That was that was a really dumb mistake on that part. Now, I made up for it by saying the Dodgers would beat the Rays in six games before the season even started, which which I nailed that pick completely. But yeah, that was a dumb pick. No, Texas is going way down, and I and I think that Texas might be one. It might be the worst team in the American League besides maybe the the Detroit Tigers. Yeah, I'm looking at this, uh, the American League West, and I I think it does come down to a three team race. Uh, the Mariners, uh, I don't, I I mean I hate to say it in front of you, Sean, but they are a dumpster fire of an organization. Uh, we saw it this this off season with uh with their. Uh, president and and what he had to say about all of the prospects and obviously the the disaster that happened with that um and then the texas rangers like you said disaster as well not very good uh aos comes down to three teams houston astros la angels and the oakland athletics and i think you are pretty spot on with your assessment of the houston astros uh this team is worse than last year uh, they lost George Springer, who I think was their best player. Jose Altuve has kind of fallen off a cliff with uh, without <laughs> the ability to cheat. Um, and then Alex Bregman hasn't really been as good as he was. Uh, I mean, we saw how good he was. He was a top-tier MVP candidate. I don't think he's still that type of player. The offense is going to be much worse. They're getting a, a downgrade on, on the outfield. They're going to have to rely on probably Kyle Tucker or Miles Straw. Uh, young guys, guys who aren't really great. Uh, their their depth chart, uh, as far as their pitching staff goes, is weak. Um, we're talking Zach Granke and Lance McCullers as their one and two. And Zach Granke is great. Sure, he's a good number two pitcher in most lineups. I, I think he's a he's a relatively good guy. Lance McCullers just got overpaid. Uh, five years, about eighty five million dollars. Absolutely terrible contract. He's been hurt his whole career. He, even when he has played, he's shown flashes that he can can maybe put it together, but he can't keep it together for long enough, and that's been a big-time issue. The next three starting pitchers are really kind of a, a, a question mark. I mean, I think Jose Uriquidi is is kind of locked in as, as that number three guy, um, but Jake Odorizzi's not ready. I mean, they signed him super late on, in, in spring training, so he's. I don't think there's any way he's going to be prepared for opening day or opening week obviously he'll be there at some point but this pitching staff scares me and in a weak division with some weaker offenses that might be okay but when you face off against the Oakland Athletics who yes they might have lost Marcus Simeon they might have lost a couple guys they got better it, it, as far as their pitching goes I mean Jesus Lasardo's good Chris Bassett's good I will say about the Oakland Athletics they did lose their star closer, Liam Hendricks, because he's now on the Toronto Blue Jays. So that's a tough loss. But if you look at the Oakland Athletics, they have the same five starting pitchers from last season. The same five. And, Kay, do you remember where the Oakland Athletics finished in Team RA last season? Uh, they were first in the AOS, weren't they? Fifth in all of Major League Baseball. Oh, in all of baseball, yeah, yeah. Fifth in all of Major League Baseball. So they returned the same starting rotation min minus their star closer in Liam Hendricks. And Oakland, when it comes to the lineup, they traded Chris Davis and they got Elvis Andrews, which, eh. But, but Chris Davis, a strikeout magnet is gone, okay? They also they also lost Marcus Simeon, which is a bit of a tough loss, but they're hard of their lineup with Matt Olson, Matt Chapman. Remember, Matt, 
Matt Chapman did not play in the postseason, and they beat the White Sox in the first round. So Chapman is coming back. Uh, you have you have mul- you have a lot of other players on this Oakland Athletics lineup coming back, and they also got Mitch Moreland. Now Mitch Moreland is not a household name, but I'll tell you what about Mitch Moreland. Mitch Moreland is a dependable pinch hitter, and he's a dependable role player. He won the 2018 World Series for White Sox, and he was a big part of the San Diego Padres last season. Yeah, and I would say Mitch Moreland is an upgrade on Chris Davis. Big now, time. Elvis Andrews is a downgrade from Marcus Simeon, but I, I think if you look at that that kind of trade-off, they didn't really lose too much right there. Yeah, I agree. And I think because of the of their pitching uh, consistency and the fact that they got most of their hitters back, I think that Oakland should cruise to win this AOS, I think that they're the only team for the AOS that's going to make the postseason because I think, because in my American League predictions, I have the Toronto Blue Jays and the Tampa Bay Rays being the two wildcard teams, just barely edging out the Minnesota Twins. I just think that Minnesota is a bit too one dimensional to compete with the Blue Jays and the Rays. The AL East is going to be absolutely loaded. It's going to be one of the best divisions in baseball. Both the East divisions are must watch. Both both East divisions are incredible, but the AOS. Weakest division, but it's going to be interesting. I also am curious to see uh, if Seattle can continue to beat up on Texas like they did last season. Because remember the Mariners' record against Texas last season? 9-1. and 9-1 and one against Texas. And I want to see if Seattle can continue to do that. Also, can they finish above the Angels again? Can, can they have another third-place finish? Because they, they, they did. They did. They they. they Finish with a better record than the Angels. It'll be very interesting to see if if the Mariners can make any step forward as their prospects begin to flourish. Well, my expectation this year is Oakland. Uh, I think they're going to stick where they were. I think they're going to win the AL West. Uh, I, I don't think they're going to be the fifth best team in all of baseball, but uh, not too big of a drop-off. Um, I know they lost their closer. They did replace him with Trevor Rosenthal, which, I mean, not too big of a drop-off. Obviously, a little bit of a drop-off. Um, I, I do like, uh, as, as the second team in the AL West, I like the Angels. I think the Angels are a team that, ha- I mean, they have the batting lineup. They have some some real talented guys in, in uh, Anthony Rendon and Mike Trout, clearly. Uh, their pitching rotation is, is a question mark to me. Gigantic uh, one at that. Dylan Bundy looked tremendous the last couple, I mean, since he's been with the Angels, which has kind of been a surprise because he looked terrible in Baltimore. Uh, Otani is supposed to pitch. I mean, he's supposed to be pitching at some point this year. I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen. I mean, he's been supposed to pitch since 2017, uh, and, and we haven't seen that happen. So if he can come out there and, and pitch well and be their second or third guy, maybe it's better. Andrew Heaney, not great. I mean, he's a fifth rotation guy. They got him right there, number three. I'm worried that... Relying on Jose Quintana for a lot of innings is going to cost this team. I mean, they signed Quintana as one of their starting pitchers, and he's just getting older. And we've seen him uh, struggle with some injuries. Uh, I'm concerned about his fit with this team. Um, I mean, he's a former ace. I mean, he is a former ace for uh, the White Sox when he was when he was over there. I don't think he's really in the in the position to be a starting pitcher anymore i think they should at some point he needs to find a bullpen position uh and, and try to try to reassess but i like the a's in this in this division i think the a's are the best team um if anybody's going to give them really any sort of uh t- 
test. I think it's the Angels because their offense just can 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 get it done. Um, but I am I, I I think as far as prospects go, the team to really watch out for is the Mariners. Uh, they've got a lot of young guys who are going to be on the field. They got a lot of guys who have looked good. I mean, I loved what I saw from Ty France. I'm not sure how much he's going to be playing, but I really liked what I saw from him. Kyle Lewis last year, J.P. Crawford, a former Philly, played his best season of baseball in his entire career here uh, with the Mariners. So there's going to be some some opportunities for some uh, some young guys to get some some real good playing time. I, I feel like Kyle Seeger is probably going to get traded at some point this season with uh, uh, his contract situation. He's coming up on free agency, and he doesn't help the Mariners in any way. Uh, so I'm excited to see what this Mariners team has to offer. I know that they had the giant controversy with their team president, uh, but there's young talent on this on this roster. There's there's good young talent. Uh, I mean, like I said, Kyle Lewis had a great uh, standout first kind of introduction to the MLB. Uh, Taylor Trammell, he can potentially come in and, and step in. I like this Mariners team as a future prospect team. Um, but I'm sure you've probably been thinking about that all the time since uh, since they're, you've become a fan of the Mariners. That's kind of been the forever process that they've been stuck in is is just building up these prospects, and then eventually they go somewhere else, and maybe they have a career, maybe they don't. Uh, who knows? But that's going to do it here for uh, uh, for Sean here on Up for Debate. Thank you very much for for joining uh, the show today, Sean. Do you have any uh, anything you want to talk about, uh, anything you want to promote for your website? Well, obviously, you mentioned this earlier. I'm doing an AOS preview. Also, I'm going to do my own in-depth preview of the Seattle Mariners for Canna Clark, so should look forward to that. Also, a album review coming out in within a couple of days as well. Oh, what kind of album are you reviewing, Sean? So, AJR came out with a new album, and they, they are a band that I saw live here a few years ago, and they came out with a new album. It wasn't the best. But I'll still re- I'll still review that within the next couple of days. Yeah, check that out on uh, the Candid Clark. He'll be posting that uh, sometime here soon. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us today. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a lot more sports to talk about in the second half of the show. Stay tuned. Two up for debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. And we talked a little bit about baseball. Opening day is tomorrow, but I want to talk a little bit more. We haven't talked baseball in quite a while since some free agency moves, some trade deadline moves, but I want to talk about the opening day games that are going to be the ones that we... Uh, definitely will want to watch. And there's a couple games that are going to be just phenomenal. Uh, the first game that I think is a must-watch game on opening day for the MLB is the Blue Jays versus Yankees game. This is the first game of the day. Starts off the MLB season with Hyunjin Ryu taking on Garrett Cole. Now, this is such a fun matchup to me because... Uh, Hyunjin Ryu is a great pitcher. We're going to see two of the best pitchers go at it in Garrett Cole and Hyunjin Ryu. Uh, but the offenses of this team, uh, of both of these teams, are much improved. Uh, for the Toronto Blue Jays, they've really taken a step forward, made a ton of really big free agency moves. I think this year they're going to have one of the best offenses in all of baseball. Uh, some of the guys that they got going this year that they brought in is Marcus Simeon, 
who we already talked about him and how big of a, an impact he had with the Oakland Athletics. And then George Springer, who we talked about him as well and how big of an impact he had uh, with Houston and how they're going to miss him really, really bad. Well, for Toronto, they also made some upgrades to their pitching staff. Three of their five starting pitchers are brand new to this team. Robbie Ray, Tanner Rourke, and Steven Matz. So I'm interested to see what kind of production they can get out of them. Uh, their top-end pitchers are good. Hyunjin Ryu, Nate Pearson. I like both of those guys. Robbie Ray as well. Uh, Tanner Rourke and Steven Matz are a little bit more iffy for me. I think Tanner Rourke is a good fourth pitcher. Uh, he's done a good job in his career. He had a lot of good time in Washington with the uh, with the Nationals. So he has some experience in some pretty big games. Uh, and, and for Washington, he pitched well. Uh, his ERA, though, has kind of been skyrocketing last year in the abbreviated 2020 season. Uh, just about seven earned run average. And he was one of their main guys. So I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about the Toronto Blue Jays and their pitching staff as they go a little deeper into the season. Uh, and for the New York Yankees, I kind of have the same concerns. I think the New York Yankees are a great offensive team, one of the best offensive teams in all of baseball. Uh, but a big problem that they have is their pitching staff is really injury prone. And that's been something that they've had to deal with for a really long time. Uh, Garrett Cole, he's healthy. He's going to be there. But we're not going to be able to see uh, maybe Araldis Chapman uh, to start the season. We're not going to be able to see some of their other guys. Uh, Corey Kluber, who should be ready for opening day. Uh, obviously, he's not starting opening day. He's had a really scary injury history that I'm not sure the Yankees can really keep up with. They've had a really hard time keeping guys healthy and making sure that, that players aren't re-injuring themselves, aren't getting hurt. Uh, but for the Yankees, they, they don't really have those healthy guys. I think Jamison Tylone is going to step up. I think he's going to be their second guy down the line because Corey Kluber, I mean, it's just a matter of time before he ends up getting hurt or he ends up missing some time. He's had so much missed time uh, in the last couple of years. And for Tylone, uh, he didn't play last season, so he did miss uh, a good portion of, of time. He hasn't played really a full season since 2018. But when he played in 2018, he looked like an absolute stud. He pitched 191 innings, the most in his career. He did follow that up with an injury, uh, and that doesn't help. So if he can step in and and come back from that injury uh, and, and come back from, from that cancer diagnosis and all of that, uh, it could be great. And, and he could show up and, and really be a game changer for this Yankees rotation. I think so far during spring training, he hasn't been terrible. Um, he's kind of shown that, that he's a guy who can get it done. He can still pitch with the best of them. Uh, I know that he did have uh, a lot of missed time in the past, but for the Yankees, this is the top team in all of the NL or the AL East. They're the top team in the AL East because of how talented their offense is. And if they want to end up winning a World Series, they're going to have to make sure uh, that their offense is not the only people performing. I mean, the, the pitching staff has to step up. Uh, Tylone has played well. He's got a one ERA so far this uh, uh, this season. Corey Kluber in spring training, 2.77. So, so far, so good. Uh, everybody has looked good for this Yankees roster, but they're going to have to keep it together. They're going to have to make sure that they don't end up losing guys to injuries down the line because that's really what's been costing this Yankees team 
for a number of years. They've just had so much problems with injuries. They've had so much problems with guys going down, uh, whether it be Luke Voigt or Aaron Judge. They've had these issues so frequently. And Luis Severino, who is shown as one of the best pitchers uh, that the Yankees have had for such a long time, has had so much trouble uh, with his injuries and has had so much trouble staying on the field and, and really getting able to stay on the field. So for the Yankees, I, I expect them to be a good team. I expect this opening day matchup between uh, the Ray or the Blue Jays and the Yankees to be a good one. But as we look at this team down the line, are they going to be able to outmatch and overtake the Blue Jays for that uh, that AL East? Are they the best team in the AL East over the Blue Jays? Well, I can't say that they are. Because when I look at this Blue Jays team, I look at an offense that is really taking a big step forward. Bo Bichette is just has the looks of a great offensive and defensive shortstop. Cavan Biggio has really stepped up as well. I think this offense has the makings to be great. Uh, but the makings to be great is a little different than being great. This Blue Jays team is going to have to really step up and really take over the the role that they think they can have. George Springer stepping into that into that lineup is going to provide the power and the pop that they need. Bo Bichette. I, I mean, there's just so many great offensive players on this roster. I'm a little worried when it comes to the relief pitchers for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, we got Jordan Romano. The the Blue Jays have Jordan Romano as their as their closer, and I'm a little worried about him stepping into that role and, and being able to take over that role. I'm not sure if he's quite ready for that that full time closer role. Uh, now he played well last year. He he had a good abbreviated season. He had 15 games played, uh, kept his ERA to 1.23, so he showed that he can get it done. But as a closer, things are a little bit different, and he didn't really have that closer role last year, so he's going to be stepping into a role that maybe he's not quite as used to, which isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad thing stepping into that role and taking over as the closer. It's just uh, it's it's going to take time. It's going to take time to really develop and stick into that role and, and, and to stay stable in that role. It's a tough role to, to, to assume. I mean, the closer is one of the most important pitchers in all of the game. I mean, if you start a game and you're winning eight to nothing and you go out and your closer gives up nine runs in the bottom of the ninth, well, there you go. You lose the game. That's just how the closer, the the closer works. It's one of the most important positions. You have the responsibility of keeping a lead, not giving up runs. And I mean, teams are trying to make those comebacks. So I think the Toronto Blue Jays are a team. If they can get their, their relief pitching figured out, uh, if Tyler Chatwood could really take over in that role, in that bullpen, I think the Blue Jays can take over and win the AL East. Now, I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I've got a couple other divisions I want to talk about and a couple more games that are going to be happening in opening week uh, or on opening day tomorrow, so stay tuned for that. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and Fridays, not Thursdays, from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports. And I guess I don't even know when my show is, but make sure to tune in on Fridays from 1 to 3 p.m., not Thursdays. Uh, But I do want to jump in. We talked a little bit about baseball uh, during the last segment, talking about the AL East. Uh, But during this segment, I want to talk about the 
discrepancies between the NL East and the, or not the NL East, the NL in general and the AL in general. Uh, because the way I look at it, the NL has probably the top three or four teams uh, before we get to the top team in the American League. And that kind of provides a little bit of a problem. Because the NL is going to beat up on each other. They're going to have a much tougher time this season to to find ways to the postseason. I mean, for example, the NL East, probably the toughest division in all of baseball. Uh, the Braves are a playoff team. They're a great team. They have a good pitching staff. They've got young, talented players. Freddie Freeman is still there. They are a playoff caliber team. The New York Mets, they have made a ton of moves this offseason and they have catapulted themselves into that same range as a playoff team. The New York Mets bringing in Francisco Lindor, bringing in some great starting pitchers. I mean, the Mets look like a top-tier team. Carlos Carrasco is there now, Taiwan Walker there as well. I expect this New York Mets team to be a playoff team. The Philadelphia Phillies, they're a team that struggled very heavily with their bullpen last season. Well, that is solved. They solved their bullpen issue. They brought in Archie Bradley. They brought in uh, Jose Alvarado. A lot of different moves as far as the bullpen goes. So the Philadelphia Phillies are a better team than last year. They are a playoff caliber team. And we're not even talking about the Washington Nationals either. The Nationals are a team that just won the World Series just a couple of years ago. And they ended up getting a little bit better this offseason. Now, they still have that top three unit of Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, or Patrick Corbin, but bringing in John Lester is going to really help that pitching staff. And then Brad Hand is one of the best closers in all of the game. Washington bringing him in is going to help. And let's not forget about their new first baseman, Josh Bell. They finally have found a guy to replace Ryan Zimmerman. He's excited to play for the Nationals. This is, once again, a playoff caliber team. And then we have a young and thriving team in the Miami Marlins, a team that in the past has been one of the one of baseball's worst for the past decade. And they are finally starting to figure out their offense. They're finally starting to get that uh, that unit put together, and they're getting better. They brought in Starling Marte this offseason, which is going to be a great improvement. Corey Dickerson is in here as well. This team is much improved uh, from what we've seen. And their pitching staff as well is going to just continue to get better and better. Sixto Sanchez, probably one of the better pitchers uh, at his age and, and at his level in, in development. He's going to be a guy who really steps up and has a big season for the Miami Marlins. This NL East is dangerous. Any of these teams could make the playoffs. Any of these teams could be on the outside looking in because of just how talented and how good these teams are. Now... Yes, not everybody can make the playoffs. There's going to be some teams on the outside looking in. There's going to be some teams that don't end up making it into the postseason. So, what do you expect? Well, if you're looking at, at, at this, you, you look at the MLB and you look at the NL East, three of those teams are most likely going to miss the postseason. Uh, seemingly, one of them makes it, one of them gets one of those wildcard spots, but three of those teams are seemingly going to miss the postseason. Now let's look at the AL West. If you put the Oakland Athletics, who are, in my opinion, the best team in all of the AL West in the NL East, what position do the Oakland Athletics get? Do they get top three? Do they get top four even? I mean, I don't think they do. I think they're a worse team than the Braves. I think they're a worse team than the Mets. 
I think they're right there with the Phillies and the Nationals. But even then, the best team in the AL West can't compete with the best teams in the NL East. Now move over to the AL Central. The top teams are the Twins and the White Sox. Both are not very well-rounded. Both are pretty young. But if you put both of those teams into the NL East, well, they're not going to thrive in the NL East. The Braves, the Mets, I mean, those teams are still above those teams in the AL Central. And the same thing goes for the AL East. Even though the Yankees and the Blue Jays are good teams, you throw them into the NLS this year and NL East this year, and they are going to struggle pretty mightily. The NL East has probably better teams than all of the entire American League. And the NL East might not even be the best teams in all of baseball with the NL West and the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Diego Padres and how good both of those teams are. We have to keep in mind, uh, we are going to see one of these three teams miss the playoffs. I mean, the Braves, the Mets, the Phillies, and the Nationals, not all those teams can make the playoffs. Uh, there's only two wild card spots. So if the Padres or the Dodgers take up one of those, the NL East has one left to grab. The NL Central has only one left up to grab. The playoffs for the NL East are going to be much more competitive. And in my opinion, whoever comes out of the NL East, whoever wins the NL it, just in general uh, and ends up getting to the World Series from the NL side, well, they're going to win the World Series. I mean, the NL is just that much more talented, that much better. I mean, the best team in the NL is the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they have three starting pitchers that are all aces. I mean, could be aces on any team in all of baseball. That's Clayton Kershaw, Trevor Bauer, and Walker Bueller. All aces on other teams. They also have an offense that can beat any team and keep up with any team in baseball. Gavin Lux is supposed to step in and have a really big role this year. Max Muncy has been incredible. Corey Seager had a tremendous year. Cody Bellinger, a future MVP, or, and a former MVP. Mookie Betts, a former MVP as well. This Los Angeles Dodgers team is completely stacked, and they're going to have to be competing against a completely stacked San Diego Padres team week in and week out just to compete for that NL West. I mean, the two top teams in baseball might be in the NL West uh, with the way the Padres are looking this year. Their pitching staff has made a ton of improvements, bringing in Hugh Darvish, bringing in Blake Snell, bringing in Denilson Lamette. I mean, Joe Musgrove, this offense's defense has made so many strides in the right direction. Offensively, Tommy Pham is now there. We're going to see some really great improvements uh, from Fernando Tatis as he ages. I mean, this team has the makings to really be a deep, deep playoff push. And as far as the American League goes, the talent is not nearly the same as it is in the National League. The National League has all the talent this year. I mean, the winner of the World Series, in my opinion, is going to come out of the National League, and it's going to come down to who is the best and deepest team. I mean, what team can really keep it going? Uh, the Dodgers, obviously, they have probably the best top three pitchers in all of baseball, but can they match up with the Atlanta Braves if the Atlanta Braves are at full strength and, and, and fully ready to go? I mean, that would be a tough matchup. Ian Anderson looked like a potential ace. Uh, we've seen how Mike Fires or excuse me, we've seen uh, how Max Fried has been and Charlie Morton. This offense, this defense, I mean, the teams in the National League have all just looked so incredible uh, coming into this season. I think it's going to be a, a battle. I mean, it's going to be a real battle just to get out of the National League and 
Whoever comes out on top, that's my team that I think is going to win the World Series. Uh, as far as the World Series prediction goes, I think the Dodgers are the team to beat. They are the best team in baseball. Trevor Bauer making his move to the Dodgers is only going to help them improve. And, I mean, they didn't get worse. They didn't lose really too many significant players. Justin Turner returned. So, I I think the Dodgers are the team to beat. Uh, they got better. Uh, teams around them still got better. The Padres got a lot better. Uh, the NL East got better. The Phillies got better. The Mets got a lot better. So, there's going to be a ton and a ton of competition here in the National League. Uh, but as far as the American League goes, it's wide open. It's a wide open race for a lot of teams that are out there because, I mean, there's just not that many teams with a ton of talent in the American League that can really keep up with the top tier teams in the National League. The Dodgers, the Padres, the Braves, the Mets. I mean, they're unstoppable uh, comparatively. But I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about the NFL and a recent big time trade that we haven't talked about quite yet on the show. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on Jack Radio. We have talked a lot of basketball. We have talked a lot of baseball. But what we haven't talked about is the big-time trade between three different NFL teams, the Miami Dolphins, the Philadelphia Eagles, and the San Francisco 49ers, this is a big-time move. And a lot of different things are coming out of this trade. Uh, and we're going to break it all down, kind of talk about what happened. So first off, let's talk about what the trade was. Well, the Miami Dolphins traded down first uh, from the third overall draft pick, and they moved down all the way to the 12th overall draft pick. Now, obviously, that's going to take some some picks. So the San Francisco 49ers traded to the Dolphins uh, the number 12 overall draft pick, a 2021 third-round draft pick. Uh, it's the San Francisco's compassory pick this year. Uh, First-round draft picks from 2022 and 2023. Uh, and that's pretty much it for that trade. Uh, so a pretty big trade for the 49ers. They're moving up to the number three overall spot. And seemingly... It's because they're moving up to get a quarterback. Now, what quarterback are they going up? Are they trying to move up to get? That is a big-time question. We haven't really determined it quite yet. Uh, but it's going to come down to probably not Trevor Lawrence, probably not Zach Wilson, as both of those guys are probably going to go number one and two. I, th I think the Jets are going to take Zach Wilson. Uh, I, I thought that Deshaun Watson to the Jets was the best fit, uh, was the most realistic fit, and a fit that the Texans could have taken advantage of. They could have gotten a ton of draft capital. Uh, but obviously with all that's happening with Deshaun Watson uh, and all the accusations going against him, he's probably going to stay put for the time being. Now the Miami Dolphins moving down uh, from 3 to 12 pretty much solidifies that they are in uh, in uh, believing, they're believing in Tua Tagovailoa. They believe that Tua Tagovailoa is going to be their quarterback. They believe that he's going to be their guy for the long term. Uh, if they didn't think so, they had a perfect opportunity to take a quarterback with the number three overall draft pick. It would have been their best opportunity. They're really, their only opportunity that they would have had to draft, uh, I think, in the top 10 for 
quite a while. So the Dolphins moved down, and they ended up at the 12th spot, but they weren't really solidified at number 12. They still wanted to move up a little bit, try to make sure they could get themselves in the, in the zone of a good weapon. So they traded with the Philadelphia Eagles, who had the number 6 overall draft pick, and the Dolphins received the number 6 and the number 156 overall draft pick uh, in exchange for the number 12 overall draft pick, uh, the number 123, which was uh, a similar uh, third-round draft pick, and a 2022 first-round draft pick. So the Eagles got an extra first-round draft pick to move down six spots in the draft. Pretty good trade for the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, and, and this tells me one thing as well. This tells me the Eagles are not a team looking for a quarterback, which is probably the right way to do it if you're the Philadelphia Eagles. They already drafted Jalen Hurts. They decided on Jalen Hurts over Carson Wentz. Drafting another quarterback wouldn't make a ton of sense at this stage in uh, Jalen Hurts' development. So the Eagles getting more draft capital, smart move for them. I don't really like that they moved out of that six range because, I mean, from six to ten, I think is when Kyle Pitts, Jamar Chase, Devontae uh, Smith are all going to get taken. So the Eagles are kind of pushing themselves back out of that range, and they need a weapon. I mean, that is probably the biggest need that they have is a big-time playmaking receiver or a tight end like Kyle Pitts. And moving down to 12 kind of makes it so it's a little bit more difficult for them to get that weapon. Maybe Jamar Chase drops. Maybe Devontae Smith drops. Probably not, though. So the Eagles look like they're going to be stuck with uh, somebody else, probably a different position they're going to have to attack. Uh, but big-time move for three different teams, and it answers three different QB questions. The Eagles sticking with Jalen Hurts. I mean, that's the question that that a lot of people were asking. Well, what's going to happen? Are the Eagles going to draft another quarterback at 6? Are they going to make another move? Probably not. I mean, if they draft a quarterback at 12, Maybe they get good value on a guy like Mac Jones. Maybe they get good value on a guy like Trey Lance. But it creates another quarterback competition that is just not suitable for that environment. I mean, it was already a bad environment, already a situation where, I, I mean, it, it wasn't a good situation just in general. Having that many quarterback battles back to back to back to back, Jalen Hurts should be the guy. Now, for the Miami Dolphins, they traded back out of that number three spot, they did end up in the number six spot, which helps them because they are looking for that weapon to put along tide to attack Vailoa. Them trading down from three to 12, in my mind, told me uh, that they're sticking with Tua. They believe in Tua. They want to get as much draft capital to build around Tua. Uh, so that's what they were doing. And then they moved right back up, which was intriguing, but I think of the right call. So the Eagles clearly weren't going to move up from 6-3. to three. Uh, If they were looking for a quarterback, maybe that was something they would do. But moving down was something that they were looking for, obviously. They wanted to move down. They wanted to uh, stockpile some more draft picks. So the Miami Dolphins, uh, they're moving back into the number 6 spot. And I love this trade for them because they end up getting an opportunity to get Kyle Pitts, to get Devontae Smith, to get Jamar Chase or Penny Sewell. Whichever one of those four guys drops to them, would be a great draft pick. I mean, Devontae Smith has a great relationship already with Tua Tagovailoa. Jamar Chase is an insane athlete, one of the most talented wide receivers we've seen in a while. Kyle Pitts could be a tight end. He could be a wide receiver. He could do anything on the offensive side of the ball at a very, very high level. He looks like a secure pick for anybody who ends up with him. 
And then Penny Suo, uh, I mean, just a guy to solidify that offensive line. So for the Dolphins, they've got a ton and a ton of options moving up to that number six spot. I expect them to draft a wide receiver, try to help out to a tag of Iloa. Uh, they already brought in Will Fuller, which was a good move. And then they already had uh, Devontae Parker. So if they can bring in a third guy uh, to bring into the mix, they won't have to rely on that receiver for too much, but it would really stack that wide receiver corpse. If they could end up with Kyle Pitts, that would be best case scenario. I mean, Kyle Pitts is an extremely talented player, uh, but at the number six spot, I don't know if he's going to drop. Uh, I know the Falcons have had interest at number four, so that would be interesting to see what the Falcons do there. Kyle Pitts ran a 4-4-4. I mean, that's incredible for a guy of his size and his athleticism uh, and his strength and all of that to, to run that quickly. He's a tremendous athlete, and any team that ends up with him is going to be uh, on a good end. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to break down uh, a little bit more of the, the coming up and, and what's going to change with this trade. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we already talked about some big shakeups in the NFL draft, and I think that that is just the first of what could be coming. I think this NFL draft is going to have a ton of trades, a ton of moves, more than we're used to seeing because, I mean, quite frankly, this NFL draft is very different from what we're used to seeing. Uh, we're used to seeing uh, prospects that are more well-seasoned. And when we see these seasoned guys, we're, we're able to evaluate them a little bit better. But for this year, we really didn't get that same advantage. Uh, if you look at the, the college prospects this year, uh, they didn't get to play outside of their own conferences, except for during the bowl games or the college football playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. But as far as evaluating a prospect goes, if no prospect played levels outside of their own conference, then how can you really evaluate the level of talent that they're playing? So as far as this NFL draft goes, there are going to be a ton of misses, a ton of missed draft picks, bad draft selections, because there's just not enough film on a lot of these players. Now, the first overall draft pick is a security. I mean, it's it's already a set-in-stone guarantee that the Jacksonville Jaguars will draft Trevor Lawrence. If they make a mistake and do not draft Trevor Lawrence, uh, I do not know what they're doing, but we can pretty much assume Trevor Lawrence is going to be the guy there. He just is the best quarterback in the draft by far. Quarterback's the most important position in all of sports, so it, it, it makes sense drafting a guy of his caliber at number one. But the quarterback battle below that is really a tough one. And it's really going to come down to uh, five different guys. And, and this, this list of guys has really been changing. It's been not really super secure. Uh, the five guys are Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, and Mac Jones. Now, Trevor Lawrence is number one. But the next four guys, that's where everything is up in the air. That's where we can't really determine how good these guys are. Zach Wilson looked tremendous. He looked like a superstar in his last season with BYU. He looked like he could really get the job done as a quarterback. But here's the deal. B. 
BYU hasn't played the most talent. He hasn't had the most obstacles to overcome. Yes, Zach Wilson has a rocket of an arm. He's got the ability to make a ton of very deep down the field throws. He has the athletic ability. He's got the arm. Zach Wilson is a prototypical modern-day quarterback, somebody who could really be uh, developed into a superstar quarterback. Trey Lance is the fastest, the best-moving quarterback in the draft this year. Uh, He's got good feet. He's got a good running ability. He's got a good sense of pressure in the pocket. But he did all of that at the FCS level. Now, there's nothing wrong with the FCS level. It's just significantly worse than what we're seeing at the FBS level. So for Trey Lance, he didn't really play the type of talent that uh, that we usually see at that level. But, I mean, to be fair with Trey Lance, the last guy that was drafted uh, in the top 5 or 10 uh, that came out of an FBS school was Carson Wentz. And Carson Wentz has turned out into a pretty good quarterback, so that wasn't a big-time miss. And before him, before Carson Wentz, the last one was Joe Flacco. So they're few and far between when they're this talented But what we saw from Trey Lance in his short time in college is really enough to get him a top 10 draft pick. I mean, he's got enough talent to get it done. Is he a seasoned veteran? Is it going to take some time for him to develop into the quarterback that that he can be? Absolutely. It's going to take him probably the most time out of all five of these guys. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have the best upside. That doesn't mean he doesn't have the highest uh, potential ceiling. I think Trevor Lawrence's ceiling is through the roof. Uh, and then you can break the roof again, and that's where his ceiling's at. Uh, as far as Trey Lance, uh, he could be the best quarterback in the class. He could be. He's got the tools. He's got the legs. He's got what it takes. But he needs to show uh, during his pro days, during all of that, that he can still get the ball slinging, that he can still run really fast. I mean, those tests are going to be important for him because he only played one game this season. He played one game, and then the entire season was moved to the spring and he opted out of that season. So for Trey Lance, he's going into a position where not a lot of film on him. But the film that is on him is superb, and he looks like an absolute stud, an absolute superstar. The other two guys are Justin Fields and Mac Jones. Justin Fields had a heyday at his uh, at his pro day. He threw the ball extremely well. He had a great touch on it. He just had a very beautiful deep ball. My biggest issue with Justin Fields is he doesn't have the best anticipation. He doesn't anticipate his routes the way that I would expect him to. Uh, I mean, I, I see him eye down routes, and <clears throat> and rather than reading the entire field going from, from one to two to three to four, uh, he, he, he kind of looks at, at his target, looks him down a little bit too much. Now, in the offense that he ran at Ohio State, it makes sense that he would do that. They didn't have the most weapons, and it was kind of a college-style offense. I mean, not the, not the most pro-style offense that we've seen. So for Justin Fields, he's got the arm. I mean, he's got the talent. He just has to make sure to get it done on the field. Uh, when guys are coming at him, that's where I'm the most concerned. If he can really survive while the blitz is coming, if he can really take advantage of his tremendous read option ability and, and use that to his advantage, I think Justin Fields can be very good. And then the last guy is Mac Jones. Mac Jones is the fifth-best quarterback in this group, seemingly, but he could be a top five quarterback in a or a top three quarterback, even top two quarterback in a lot of different classes. Mac Jones is a pocket quarterback, so that kind of is what holds him back a little bit because pocket style quarterbacks, even though they have had a ton of success, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, there's just not as much you can do with them as a guy who moves outside the pocket like Patrick Mahomes or like Lamar Jackson. 
I mean, Lamar Jackson has completely transformed a new style of offense that we have never seen before uh, with the way he runs the ball. So Mac Jones doesn't provide that sort of uh, that play-calling uh, creativity that, that guys like Trey Lance might, but Mac Jones has a great arm. He's got great pocket composure. He's been there at the top level. I mean, had a great season this last season. Uh, he has had a tough time getting that starting time. Uh, he spent a lot of time backing up uh, to a tag of Iloa, Jalen Hurts as well, both NFL quarterbacks. So he didn't have an easy path to get here. Uh, as far as Alabama quarterbacks go, he's one of the more tested ones uh, when it comes to adversity. Uh, coming in as a final year starter, obviously replacing to a tag of Iloa when he went down with the injury last year. But for, for Mac Jones, he proved himself. He proved that he could be a good pocket-style quarterback in the right offense. Now, finding the right offense is really where the problem comes. Now, with the NFL draft shakeup, the, the 49ers trading up to the number three spot, that's not going to be the last one. The first three picks look like they're all going to be quarterbacks. The fourth pick is really what's the big question mark. What are the Atlanta Falcons going to do at number four? Cincinnati should hold still at five, hope for Penny Sewell. But outside of that, it should be all quarterbacks. I mean, these five guys should go pretty early on in the draft. I don't expect them to drop any, or to drop any any further than ten to twelve, uh, as the last one. Uh, teams want quarterbacks, and 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 it's such a season where there's so many quarterbacks available and so many teams switching quarterbacks. Uh, they're going to be going as quick as they can. Now, that's going to do it for up for debate today. Thanks you all very much for tuning in. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports. Thank you all for tuning in. Make sure to follow me on social media at the underscore Cade Reed. And I will see you guys on Friday. But don't forget we have a Thursday baseball game tomorrow, 345. We've got a great Flagstaff High game. So tune in tomorrow, 345, to hear some baseball. I'll be in the booth making sure everything is going A-OK. -okay. So tune in then. I'll see you guys then.